0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 5. We're going to be reading the last two verses of the book of James, uh, James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. I would ask you, if you're able, please stand together with me as we read from God's holy inspired inerrant and infallible word. James chapter 5 verse 19, my brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, we're finally, finally there, finally at the last few verses of the book of James. Been in the book of James for uh, a few months before uh, Christmas, and now uh, one month uh, into the new year, uh, we've been in the book of James. Uh, you'll recall that the letter that James wrote, you've been with us, hopefully you remember it, it's one of the earliest, if, if, if not the earliest, book of all the New Testament books, Uh, And it was written by James to the uh, early Christian church, which was predominantly Jewish Christians at that time. And they needed to be instructed on what it means to live as a Christian. And so what we see here is not what it means to uh, how you become a Christian, but it it is uh, written for those who have already become Christians. And he's saying if you're a Christian, you're supposed to look like it. And this is what it looks like to be a Christian Christian. And so James has dealt with issues uh, that, that Christians would encounter. If you're a Christian, how do you deal with trials in your life? He talks to us about that. How do you deal with temptations? How do you deal as a Christian with your finances? As a Christian, what is your attitude to be towards showing favoritism? As a Christian, how are you supposed to speak? What is your view of humility as a Christian? As a Christian, are you, are you patient? You should be patient. As a Christian, you should be a person of prayer and have a, have a, a Christian prayer life. And so we come now to the end of James's letter. And it seems kind of a, an odd way to conclude a book. It's not really a letter. It's not really a conclusion, right? It's not like we read in the uh, Apostle uh, Paul's letters when uh, he gets towards the end, he's kind of wound down and he begins to share personal remarks with different individuals and he ends with a benediction. It's kind of a, what you would think of as a conclusion of a book in the New Testament. But that's not what James does. He's been teaching all along, as a Christian you're supposed to look like this and he continues on here at the end. As a Christian, you're still supposed to look like this. This morning, he's dealing with As a Christian, how do you live with the relationships within the body of Christ? With other Christians, those we call brothers and sisters in Christ, how do you live in response to them? Concluding remarks are very important. I mean, the last remarks that you make to someone are, are usually so very important. Maybe you remember, uh, for those of you who have had children, you remember when you would send them out or they would be going out for some party or something, and uh, it was kind of the first few times and uh, that they were going to leave the house to go to parties. You remember, you want to get in the most important instructions, save them for last. So this is the lasting thing that they're going to remember as they go out. That's what Jesus did, I think, with us. You remember his, some of his last uh, uh, discussions with his disciples and with us? What do we find here? We find the Great Commission. And we find it over and over again. Jesus in his concluding remarks are, Now you're going to be my witnesses. Now go out and share the gospel with all creation. This is very important. These are my last words to you that you're going you're to hear verbally right now. I want you to go out and be my witnesses. And even as he comes to the Apostle Paul, in, uh, in Acts chapter 8 there, we see that, uh, um, that uh, he's telling Paul, you're going to be my witness. These are, these are the last audible words you're going to hear from me. You're going to be my witness. Jesus wants us to re- remember that. He's telling us it's very important for us to evangelize. It's very very important for us to be about the Great Commission. So Jesus wanted to say these are my last words too. I think the same can be said of James here. These are some concluding remarks that he feels are very important for for the body of Christ, for believers, for brothers and sisters, those of us who have been adopted into God's family. How are we to live? James, I think, is answering a question uh, for the church that Cain asked very early, back in uh, Genesis chapter 4, where uh, you remember he kills his brother, and God comes and asks him, Where's your brother? And his, his question is, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, he's thinking that there is a negative response to that. No, you're not your brother's keeper. Come on, away. But, indeed, there is a positive answer to that. And that's what James is telling us here. Yes, we are a brother's keeper. Within the family of God, we are each other's keeper. And we need to be looking after each other like this. With this truth in mind, James ends this letter, verses 19 and 20, with three realities of life which have major impact on how we live as the family of God. The three different realities that we need to think about when we're dealing with one another uh, in the church. And so you, uh, I believe you have an outline in your bulletin here. You see the three points. The first one we find, verse 19, is that there is truth to be followed. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth... Jesus, in John chapter 18, talking to Pilate, said, "'Everyone on the side of truth listens to me.'" And Pilate, uh, being philosophical, I believe, at this point, asked the question, what is truth? Over the years, philosophers have, have tried and tried to, to determine and to define truth. What is truth? And that's, that's uh, come up over and over again in the different philosophies of life. There's contemporary in, in contemporary Western circles there's a thought that uh, is, is kind of predominant. It's called postmodernism. What postmodernism is done is it's critiqued modernity or, or cr- critiqued modernism. And it's saying with that, what you had is people saying that there's, this is truth. And they take that idea of truth and they use it to uh, lord over other people. And that's an evil thing. And so, in postmodernism, the a basic philosophy of postmodernism is that truth is really relative. It's relative to the culture you grew up in. They'll say it's your paradigm. Okay. And so, the culture that you grew up in—I grew up in the South, in the Bible Belt—and so I was taught that way. And so, those things, those teachings of the of the uh, beliefs of the Bible Belt and the uh, mid to latter part of the 20th century, that would be my truth. And that's true for me. Now somebody raised in a different culture, maybe somebody raised in the Middle East, they're raised under an Islamic teaching. And those things the, what I believe is truth will you know clash with what they believe is truth, but it's still truth for them. So that's their truth and this is my truth. And we would be wrong to ever tell anyone else that there's just something out there called truth that we all ought to follow. That's, in a, in, a, in a real nutshell, the basis of postmodernism. You can't tell anybody else, you need to see my truth and follow it, because that's just truth for you. We see this, this philosophy, as it's been taught in the colleges and, and universities today really has affected American culture and even those within the church. A few years ago, surveys were done uh, in regards to this, and uh, one survey that indicated that two-thirds of American adults uh, believe that there is no such thing as, as absolute truth. This is in the church two-thirds, 66% of American adults don't believe that there's anything as absolute truth. Among 18 to 25-year-olds within the church, this survey found that 74% say there's no such thing as absolute truth. And so, so often we hear things like this in the church, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. You ever heard that sort of thing? Or even, maybe you've heard something like this, I believe that the truth is inside me. And so the truth which is inside me is what I live by. Truth becomes something that's subjective rather than objective. It exists within me instead of outside of me. Uh, This is important. I know we're talking maybe some philosophical issues and you're, you're thinking, why is this so important? It's very important. I want you to know the Bible makes it, tr- makes it clear that truth does exist. That truth exists outside of us. It's not something that's subject to my likes or dislikes. It's not subject to my fallen way of thinking. To say that what's true for me might not be true for you. It's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible's clear. Truth exists. And so Jesus, in John 18, talking to Pilate, um, as we we, uh, have already heard, he would say something like, everyone who is on the side of the truth listens to me. Everyone who is on the side of the truth, he's not talking about some subjective thing that's in your mind or inside of you. He's talking about a reality that exists outside of you. Jesus, in John 14, says, Verse 6, and I am the way and the truth and the life. In John chapter 8, Jesus talking to the religious, some of the religious leaders, uh, said to the Jews, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The idea of truth as a reality that exists outside of me is quite prominent. It, it, prominently taught in the New Testament. In fact, the word truth is used 108 times in the New Testament. Clearly teaching that truth is found in God who has revealed himself to us and his truth in his word. James talks about those who wander from the truth here. If one of you should wander from the truth Now how can you wander from something that is inside of you? (laughs) If truth is just inside of you, how can you wander from that? You can. It stays with you. And if you should change your mind of what you thought yesterday was the truth, now today you don't. How can you wander from that? It would be ludicrous of James to suggest that we could wander from that kind of idea of the truth. James has no pretense of thinking that truth is is subjective or relative to the individual or to the way that you grew up. It wouldn't be possible to wander from such a truth. It would be impossible to bring anyone back from such a truth or bring them back to such a truth. How can you bring them back to what they already believe in their hearts? You, You can't do that. It's not possible. And so He talks about those who wander from the truth. They need to be brought back to that truth. If you wander from the truth, it's not a good thing. That's the reason you need to be brought back to it. If they're believing in what's not true, that's not a good thing. Um, What about those who wander from the truth? What of them? What, What about... the the lack of truth that they're believing. What happens to them? What about if you believe the lies of the world? What does that lead you to? We see what it leads us to in Genesis 3, where the very first untruth is spoken, when Satan says to the woman, if you eat of that fruit, you will not die. Or the consequences of wandering from the truth that God had told her. Well, Adam and Eve wandered, and they took the fruit. And as a result, death came to all men. Truth sets us free from sin, and it sets us free, therefore, from death. When we wander from the truth, death is the consequence. And so we see, first of all, in this passage, that there is certainly a truth to be followed. Secondly, We see that there's death to be avoided. Um, Look with me in verse 20. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Following the deception of Satan, the world has dreaded consequences. Death comes as a result. Following the truth brings life. Following the the deception of Satan in the world brings death. I want you to listen to a passage from John chapter 8 where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees regarding the devil and his lies. And I want you to notice as I read it, if you want to look it up, it's John 8, uh, 44 through 47. I want you to notice the relationship between truth and life as opposed to deception and death. Okay? Truth and life on one side, deception and death, deceit and death on the other. John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. See the connection between deception and death here? He's a murderer. He speaks lies. Now notice, uh, contrary to that, the, the, the connection of truth and life. Yet I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? I'm telling you the truth. Why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God. Here's what God said. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. There's a connection between deceit and death as opposed to truth and life. James is telling us here death is something that's to be avoided. We avoid death by following the truth. The truth of God, the truth that James has been giving us throughout this letter. This is the way you're you're supposed to live. Now, there are those who would take this passage and suggest that uh, this verse, especially verse 20 here, would be suggesting that a true believer can lose his salvation. Uh, But I don't think that's the case, so we're taking just a brief parenthesis here. don't believe that that is what this is talking about. One commentator put it this way. If we make this verse merely an occasion to argue whether Christians can lose their salvation, we will miss the real impact James wants to make on his readers. He is again with passion and forcefulness warning his readers that genuine faith includes repentance for sin and a life of obedience to Christ as Lord. What James is saying in 5:20 is simply consistent with his view throughout the letter. His point is not that the true believers may lose their salvation by sinning, but that sinful, uh, but that sin, full-grown, ultimately destroys the sinner, and that genuine faith compels us to flee from sin and to help each other do the same. To the very end, James insists. On the lordship of Christ as an essential part of the gospel. Years ago there was a a big issue over this whole idea of the lordship of Christ. There were those who were saying, yes you can uh, pray to become a Christian and you are a Christian. It doesn't have to affect your life in any way. And that's certainly not what James is saying. It's not what Paul ever says. If you are a Christian, it affects your life. It changes you. You are to live a certain way. And so in in dealing with this this passage here to uh, believers within the body, living in the body together, he says truth is something important. Truth is something uh, uh, not to be wandered away from. Truth is something we have to hold because we need to avoid death. We avoid death by holding to the truth. And so with that in mind, Paul or James goes to a third issue here. I believe that, that we have ministry to give. Uh, we, we saw that there is truth to be followed. There's death to be avoided. And finally, within the family of God, there's ministry to give to each other in light of truth and death here. So back to the question that, uh, that Cain asked, and maybe we asked, are we our brother's keeper? Do we have a responsibility for the rest of the family of God? Absolutely. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you've been placed in the body of Christ, that means you have a responsibility for everyone else who is in this room who's part of that family of God. It only seems right that we would take responsibility for our family members, right? We do for our physical family members one of them's in trouble, we do all we can to save them. Back when I was still in Florida, when we were living in Florida, used to go to the beach uh, quite often, almost every weekend, and take the, uh, my children, Duncan and Bethan, and I'd go with my best friend Gary, and he'd take uh, his two sons, uh, Matthew and John. And uh, Bethan was the youngest, smallest, and the boys would be out throwing the ball. They would go out in the water and throw the ball to one another and having a good time. And I'm sitting on the beach kind of watching it. And the next thing I know, I see Bethan going out there. And she's going out. It's too deep of water for her. And it didn't take any time at all for me to be up off that beach and into the water. I, I believe I it was the closest I ever came to walking on water to get out there, too. It was important for me that she is saved from that sort of thing that would hurt her, do her harm. We think that way of of, of our physical uh, families. We think that way about our children, about our parents, about our, our siblings. We want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to bring them harm. Well, James is saying we truly are the family of God. We truly are brothers and sisters in Christ. And just as you have a responsibility for those in your physical family, you have a responsibility for those in your spiritual family. You do not want to see them wander away from the truth. You do not want to see them have the consequences of wandering away from the truth. The death that would come as a result. So we have a responsibility to look at the rest of the family of God. Our brothers and sisters... And lovingly care for them. Do the things to keep them from, from from falling into such a danger. That's what church discipline is really all about. It's about loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault between the two of you. If he listens, you've won your brother over. That's a great thing. You You care for him. You want to win him over. But if he does not listen, you don't want him to continue in that way. You continue to pursue it. If he does not listen, take one or two along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You take somebody along with you. You confront them again. You're headed in the wrong direction. And then finally, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Why, why are we doing this? Well, certainly there's an aspect of the purity of the church. We see that in Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians. But ultimately, this is for the brothers and sisters in Christ. You want to win them back to the truth. Now, I want you to notice, as Jesus says this, if a brother sins against you, go and show him your faults, between the two of you. It's not just the responsibility of church officers. It's a responsibility of every member of the household of God to be caring for all the rest of the members of the household of God. A brother or sister wanders from the truth. It is our responsibility. Out of love and concern for them to confront them with their errors that they might return to the truth and find life instead of death. So James, concluding with something that he sees very important. These are the last words I'm going to write to you. In this very abrupt conclusion, he reminds us that we're part of the family of God and we're responsible for one another. We're responsible to hold one another to the truth. My prayer for us, and hopefully your prayer for us as well, is that my God might give us enough love for one another that we could, out of love, be bold to always be encouraging one another to follow the truth, especially when we see them maybe slipping away from it. We show them the error of their way, James says, we will save him from death and cover over. A multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, again, we've seen from your word what it means to live as a Christian, how we're supposed to live as a Christian. And we see we do have a responsibility for all of the rest who are within the body of Christ. We have a responsibility for one another. It's not always easy. So Lord, I pray this morning. That our love for one another might truly be that is love for a family member because we are your family. Help us to be loving and bold enough to confront one another when someone strays from the truth. Bring them back before it's too late. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.